In the beginning was the Word. The Word that was in the beginning tamed the wild and waste and flooded the deep darkness with light. The Word formed the heavens, the seas, and the land and filled them with life. Through the Word, all things were made. Without the Word, nothing was made that has been made. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This one was in the beginning with God. In Him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. And the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. The Word became flesh and tabernacled in our midst. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. My name is Kenneth Paget, and this is the Story of God podcast, presented by Wolfbane Books. Do you remember how the world came to be? In the opening chapter of the Bible, God spoke. We discussed this in episode 2. At God's decree, the deep darkness was invaded by piercing light. God spoke and dry land rose out of the watery wilds. Let there be led to this spoken world being formed and filled with life and light. In Genesis 1, we saw that the world began with words. In John 1, we see that the Word began the world. And of course, the Word is Jesus, the second person of the one triune God. In order to understand John 1, 1 through 5, we need to remember the context. This is a time of exile and foreign occupation for the people of God. Go back to episode 7 if you need a refresher on this. They, like Adam and Eve, disobeyed God and were exiled out of his lush land to the east, to Babel. Now, imagine if Adam's son Seth had wandered back into Eden years later only to discover that God's presence wasn't there. Remember that Yahweh's presence left the temple back in Ezekiel 10, and it is never reported that he had returned and filled the second temple. Yes, some of the Jewish people have wandered back into the land, but it is a dark time of continued exile and occupation. It kind of reminds me of the Pevensies returning to Narnia in the book Prince Caspian, where the once magnificent palace Caerperavel stood. There is now nothing but overgrown ruins, and the land of Narnia is occupied by the foreigners called the Telmarines. So now the Romans occupied the promised land and the great city of Jerusalem. It is against this dark backdrop, this spiritual tohu vavohu, remember that's the wild and waste of Genesis 1, that John pins the words, in the beginning. Like Matthew's opening sentence, John's is exploding with significant theological import from Jesus. A new creation. Word and light invading the darkness. John says that Jesus is the light, the true light. He is the light of mankind. He is the light that shines in the darkness. He is the light that has come into the world and gives light to every person. 
In John 8, Jesus says that he is the light of the world and that the one who follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In the original creation, the word of God filled the world with life and light. In the new creation, the word of God comes to the darkened world and is himself the life and light. This isn't the first time that God has stepped into this dark, fallen world. After the exodus from Egypt, God met his people in the wilderness of Sinai, at the mountain of God. If you recall, God had them build a tent that would serve as a mobile mountain, where his presence would dwell in their midst as a source of life and light. In Exodus chapter 40, God's radiant glory filled the tabernacle. The Greek word for tabernacle is skini. When John describes Jesus coming to dwell in the midst of his people in chapter 1, verse 14, he uses the word skino. The word became flesh and tabernacled in our midst, and we saw his glory, glory as of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, like Matthew, sees the God of Genesis and Exodus in the face of Jesus. He is the maker of all things. He is the light and life of the world. He is the great deliverer who breaks the bonds of slavery and tabernacles with us in the wilderness. The creator is launching a new creation so that he can dwell in the midst of his people. Now listen, John's gospel is soaked with new creation and new Exodus imagery and illusions. Almost everywhere you look, you can see these themes woven into the literary and narrative structure. I couldn't possibly examine every instance of this, and I'm sure I haven't discovered all that is there. But let me give you two quick examples. Look at how chapter 1 appears to unfold in seven days. After the explosive new creation introduction in John 1, 1 through 18, the narrative begins. If you take verse 19 as day one of the story, it is followed by three occurrences of on the next day, which is then followed by on the third day, when Jesus performs the miracle at the wedding. Four days followed by three days. Now, I'm not saying that each day correlates to the days of creation. I'm simply saying that John's gospel is dripping with new creation language and imagery because as we have seen, something no less amazing than new creation is happening in Jesus. So encountering a seven-day sequence almost feels natural here. How about something like the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6? Just look at the first few verses. Passover, a large crowd of Abraham's offspring, a sea crossing, Jesus on a mountain, a miraculous provision of food. This all sets up the moment when Jesus says later in the chapter that he is the bread that came down from heaven, like the manna in the wilderness. Notice that the Israelites are grumbling when the manna is given in Exodus 16, and they are grumbling when Jesus says that he is the bread in John 6. One could go on and on in John's gospel, observing these subtle allusions but they are all pointing to the reality of a new creation and a new exodus arriving in Jesus, who is Yahweh, the creator and deliverer of the Old Testament. We could also talk about more obvious themes right on the surface of the text, like Jesus saying that he is the temple in John 2. We've seen in John 1 that he is the tabernacling presence of God, 
But here, he, the God-man, is also the temple, the place where God and man cohabitate, the place where heaven and earth overlap. In Matthew's account, Jesus says that indeed he was greater than the temple. When John says that they beheld his glory, the disciples are seeing what the weeping elders in the book of Ezra didn't see in their newly rebuilt temple. Remember how we saw that Jesus makes a steady ascent to Jerusalem in the book of Matthew. He doesn't arrive there until chapter 21. John can't wait to get us there. Two chapters into his account, and we're seeing Yahweh in the temple. And the first thing he does is cleanse it. Or let's look briefly at the new birth teaching in John 3. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, comes to Jesus at night, perhaps to avoid the public attention. He had seen the signs and was discerning that Jesus was from God, and that indeed God was with Jesus. But Jesus' response baffles Nicodemus. You must be born again to see things clearly. The Pharisee, the teacher of God's people, doesn't get it. But Jesus assumes Nicodemus should understand. Why? Because Israel's foundational story is a new birth story. In the book of Exodus, the people endured the birth pangs of the plagues in Egypt. Then they passed through the bloody doors at Passover, and through the waters and onto the dry land of Sinai. Remember, God calls Israel his firstborn son in Exodus 4. And remember that the Exodus was prefigured in a birth narrative in Exodus 1 and 2. Moses' birth. The Exodus from Egypt is a birth narrative. Blood and water, but also wind. It's a great wind that parts the sea. The word for wind in Hebrew is also the word for spirit, ruach. In Genesis 1-2, the ruach of God is over the waters of chaos. In Exodus 14, the great ruach parts the sea. This is also true in Greek. Pneuma is the word for spirit and wind. Jesus makes this connection crystal clear in John 3.8. The Exodus story is part of Israel's origin story. They commemorate it every year in the feasts and every day in their prayers. Everyone knows this story. Jesus thinks Nicodemus should know what Jesus is talking about precisely because he is responsible for passing on the Exodus story. Nicodemus isn't seeing clearly because Nicodemus isn't yet seeing Jesus as the God of the Exodus. And by the way, this whole conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus happens because Jesus has made his yearly pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. New creation and new Exodus everywhere you look. John says Jesus is the light, the light that shines in the darkness. The Greek word for light is phos, where we get words like photo. In John's account, there are two basic reactions to the phos or to the light. Now, brace yourself for two nerdy words, photophobic or phototrophic. Of course, phobic or phobia are Greek words that we use today, meaning fear. The photophobic are those who fear the light. The phototrophic receive the light as life-giving.
These nerdy words describe the two basic reactions you get to Jesus' arrival in the Gospel of John. Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus illuminates this reality. Yes, the pun was intended. Jesus is doing signs in Jerusalem. We read in John 2, 23 and 25 that many people believe because of the signs. Even Nicodemus has seen them and come to Jesus to learn more. But Jesus knows the heart of man. He tells Nicodemus, The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. Of course, we have seen people genuinely coming to Jesus already. In chapter 1, Jesus begins to gather his disciples. Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel see the light, the phos, and they instantly make massive claims about who he is. They say, we have found the Messiah, and we have found the one whom Moses wrote about in the law and the prophets wrote about, Jesus. And, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. This handful of men see the light and are drawn to it as a source of life. Phototrophic for my nerds out there. But these other folks in Jerusalem are drawn to Jesus' miracles and signs, and Jesus knows that they are not truly drawn to him. So he says to Nicodemus in John 3.18, The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because of their evil deeds. Photophobia is often caused by people not wanting the light to be shown on their sinful deeds and lifestyle. Like rats and roaches, they prefer the dark. But what of Nicodemus? He comes to Jesus in John 3 under the cover of night. He's curious but confused. He hears Jesus' famous teaching, ever heard of John 3.16? And then departs the narrative without mention. What becomes of him? Well, he slips back into the story very briefly in John 7. If you read the chapter, you will see a confused mess because the people do not know what to do with this light that is shining in their midst. The Jews in the south were seeking to kill him. Jesus' brothers reject him. Jesus says the world hates him because he exposes their evil deeds. But some say he's a good man. But others retort that he is a deceiver and in fact filled with a demon. Jesus is teaching openly, and the people begin to wonder if the rulers of Israel actually know that he is the Christ and are still trying to kill him. The Pharisees and the chief priests seek to seize him and take him into custody. In the midst of this chaos, Jesus stands up and beckons people to come to him. He says in John 7, 37 and 38, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and let him drink, the one who believes in me. This causes more confusion and division, as some say he is the Christ and some reject him. In the chaos caused by the Creator himself burning bright in the midst of his people, the rulers press to bring him in and try him. But there is one voice that speaks up, a voice we've heard before. In verses 51 and 52, Nicodemus in the midst of his fellow Pharisees, softly comes to the defense of Jesus and pushes back against the rashness of his peers. And then he, 
once again, unceremoniously, disappears from the narrative. In John 3, Nicodemus comes in secret, filled with curiosity. Is he drawn to the light, or will he flee from it? In John 7, Nicodemus publicly reprimands the council for their hasty judgment of Jesus. That's a good sign. At least he's moving in the right direction. But he has gone before we know exactly what to do with him. Except that he does show up in the narrative one more brief time. After Jesus' death, in chapter 19, we read about Joseph of Arimathea coming to Pilate for permission to collect Jesus' body and bury it. If you think the turmoil that Jesus caused was over when they killed him, you're mistaken. It could not have been a more dangerous time for his followers. Anyone connected with Jesus was at extreme risk of suffering the same fate he did. This was a bold move by Joseph. But Joseph was not alone. Here again, we see our friend Nicodemus, the one who first came in the night in John 3 and then defended Jesus openly before the Pharisees in John 7, comes with expensive spices and aloe for the burial. The excessive amount mentioned may point to a royal burial. In John 3, Jesus had mentioned his kingdom several times to Nicodemus. Whether or not that is inferred, we can see plainly that Nicodemus has been on a phototrophic journey throughout Jesus' ministry, meaning he saw the light and was slowly drawn toward it. He risked everything. As a Pharisee, he was a man of stature in the community. Judging by the expensive spices and aloes he brought to the burial site, he was likely wealthy. But now, as the disciples have scattered away from Jesus, Nicodemus seems more alive than ever. And then he's gone from the biblical account. In fact, John is the only biblical writer who mentions Nicodemus at all. Some ancient Christian traditions recognize him as a saint. And church history holds that he continued to worship Jesus as king for the remainder of his days. Whatever became of Nicodemus, John shares his journey with us, perhaps as just another model of moving away from the fleeting and deceitful comforts of this world and toward the true light, out of slavery and into salvation. In this episode, we very briefly hopped around John's gospel exploring themes of new creation, new exodus, and true light coming into the world. All of this has been an attempt to understand Jesus better, to induce a phototrophic response to his brilliance and beauty. John 1 says that Jesus is the light and life of all mankind. John 3.16 says that Jesus is the Father's gift to the whole world. God wants a global garden city where he will dwell in the midst of his people as an everlasting source of life and light. That's happening, and it's happening only in Jesus. Whether you are seven or 77, you are invited into this marvelous light.
This episode of the Story of God podcast was presented by Wolfbane Books. Please visit us at wolfbanebooks.com or on social media at wolfbanebooks.com.